God, the priest of the Israelites. every single moment of every day okay <laughs> believe um all right well welcome to smite me we're here um <laughs> we are here we are here it's a torah podcast but we're not talking about the torah today no torah today if we're not gonna talk about the torah <laughs> what are we gonna talk what? about um we're gonna talk about professor norman finkelstein today um, but As first, he... these are my co-hosts, Josh Marcus. <laughs> have... I forgot how to do this. Um, <laughs> hi. And this is Ayani Hayashi. This is me. This is I. I'm the one wondering why we're not talking about the Torah on this this holy, holy day. Um, well, we got bored with the Torah, and so instead we decided to talk about the um, very spicy public figure named Norman Finkelstein. I think public figure is a good word. To describe mm-hmm. him, yeah, academic. Uh-huh. As you can tell by his um, just insanely Semitic name, uh, Norman Finkelstein is a Jew. He is a public intellectual. He writes books. He goes on podcasts. He shouts at people in lecture halls. Um, he's not doing so much of that nowadays. Yes. So yeah, he's kind of one of the more prominent critics of. Israel in the U.S. Academy. Uh, yeah, I would say that, and definitely he's he's one of the more sympath not more. He's a very sympathetic Jewish voice to the Palestinian cause, um, which has caused him a good amount of controversy. Which feels like that shouldn't be a thing, but it is. Um, yeah, but he's also. Like, oh, sorry. I was gonna say he's also uh, not. He will. You will see a lot of stuff about him being an insane. Uh, crazy maniac or you'll see things about how he's uh you know just like a really like terrible person or whatever and these will usually be directed at him because of his beliefs and uh it's just he's a well we'll get into him his beliefs aren't the problem (laughs) yeah he's like he's like a pretty i mean he's an extremely rigorous scholar and he's also seems insufferable to be around um and those those two sets of things have made him have like a long and kind of interesting controversial public life um but we thought he was worthwhile just because he has some interesting critiques of israel and um he's also just like a fascinating weirdo and i mean we were all talking off pod a little behind the scenes about how this is probably the most homework we've all done for any of the shows which just goes to show how much we uh, enjoy reading the torah compared to anything else um but yeah, yeah we're we literally about this one we dove head first into just a man we because. dove head for I dove head first into Norman Finkelstein because it's not the excuse Torah. me, <laughs> <laughs> sir. Um, do you want to actually give a little bit of a brief uh, uh, what's it called um, intro into like how you came to know about Norm? Oh yeah, because you suggested it. Yeah. Oh, I guess. Mister. I guess I just knew my friend Aaron, who's been on the podcast, messaged me um, like one time asking if I knew who Norman Finkelstein was. He sent me some article. I don't know. But I guess he kind of kind of through like the I don't know. There there's that one clip of him um 
where he's talking about crocodile tears. Oh, yes. And he's, he <laughs> says, I don't like it and I don't respect it. Um, and I guess that's, I don't know, that went viral. I mean, it's, it's, it's gone around a few times, but yeah, I guess just, he's kind of like known in like a lot of like lefty Jewish circles is like just this kind of cranky old man who's right about stuff. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I would say in more conven- – honestly, like it kind of pains me to say, but in more conventional circles, he's kind of known as like this uh, vehemently anti-Israel. Some would say anti-Semitic. Some would say Holocaust denier. Yeah. Like some of his – he's like one of those guys – he's like one of the only left identifying people I could think of who would get people – who would draw protesters to protest them like speaking on a college campus. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I honestly probably couldn't think of anyone else. No, I think most of the other people who would get that, they just wouldn't have speaking. Yeah. Well, we should probably yeah. give the context that he's like, did we give the context yet that he's the son of? No, no, no. No. Yeah. I so, was okay. going to say before we got into him, I was going to ask if we had any like fun updates, Jews in the news or anything like mm. that. But at the mm. same time, this episode is essentially one big Jew in the news. That's true. <laughs> He's never not been in the news. Yeah. <laughs> Jew in the news? Well, Josh, you sent me that article today yeah. that was like, oh shit, maybe Norman Finkelstein is right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We'll get into it, but uh, I'll just. We'll get we'll get into it. There's a Holocaust um, There's a survivor pageant. pageant of just, yeah, just Holocaust. Of what? <laughs> Yeah, there's like a Miss Holocaust Survivor pageant, I believe. Ah, yes. Multiple people sent me art- the article about it. Oh, okay. I Great didn't grandmother today, wins Miss so. pageant, Miss Holocaust pageant for survivors of Nazi. It's terror. really called Miss Holocaust. <laughs> uh, all ten finalists survive the horrors of the Nazi death camps. Oh, miss me with that Holocaust, a hey, <laughs> that is so. That's real. <laughs> that's real. Um, yes, okay. What so, kind of challenges did they do? Well, how do you Oh, feel? God, that's so terrible, but also, wow. As Israel prepares to host, yeah, of course it's in Israel, uh, to host the 70th oh, Miss Universe, the only a more unlikely pageant has taken place in Jerusalem. Um, an 86-year-old grandmother, Selena Steinfeld, was crowned as this year's winner. There's this always year's ne- winner? <laughs> always next year. The competition is held, says organizers, to try and gain some of the, quote, missing happiness suffered by Holocaust survivors during their childhood. I... Um, wow. Okay, we are... This is so dark and we don't have I know, this time is to like go down fucking, this rabbit hole. I cannot look away, but I must. <laughs> who is Norman Finkelstein? Who is Norman Finkelstein? Is how he would say it. He um, has, a, has a, a horrible voice. Um, it's distinct. It's it distinguished. Is distinctive, you, but you also kind of can't can't turn away when you hear it um so it's like what if imagine gilbert Gottfried like yelling at you about human <laughs> rights abuses imagine someone who is literally has been being pinched their entire life um, <laughs> and that is what normal thing sounds like some essential things to know about him um he grew up in a working class brooklyn jewish neighborhood um he's the child of two holocaust survivors who were in auschwitz and Maidanik, and who were part of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Um, so they went through some shit. Um, they were fanatically anti-war. Um, they worshipped Stalin and the Russians uh, for beating the Nazis. And they basically made it, you know, he, he talks about growing up in this house where, like, you know, the historical past of the Holocaust was not the past. Like, it was every single day. And that 
living with that experience, his parents were kind of like, yeah, you like you can't let shit slide ever. Like war is horrible. Racism's horrible. Like you can't just sit by. They definitely taught him. And he mentions it a couple times that basically I there's not the exact words he uses, but basically that like the Jewish people are under a like new obligation essentially because of what happened to them to never let it happen to other people right they've had to witness it so Um, yeah there's like a really succinct line on his wikipedia that's just like his parents liked the idea of israel but they felt it had been corrupted by the west it's just like (laughs) for sure dude i think um, yeah i would actually say that's a pretty i would probably we don't we we don't have time to get into it but there's like in early zionism like even pre-world war ii zionism there was like a huge left-wing contingency of it mm-hmm. um that was actually in power for the the start more of the state of israel and i feel like they would probably feel that in a lot of ways right where like especially by the time norm is kind of coming up as a as a kid and as a you know burgeoning academic i think a lot of what those people's like thought they were doing definitely mm-hmm. turned out not to be the case. That is not to whitewash any of those fucking people's beliefs either. Cause not all of them were uh, particularly enlightened when it came to what they were doing. Yes. But yeah. I think the current state of like the current state and the state of Israel at the point that norm is coming up, I think would have been, uh, would have seemed foreign to them at the very least. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so he grows up in this milieu. He grows up wanting to, or just with this very kind of like activist, or I should say more anti war. They weren't, his parents weren't exactly activists, but they just abhorred war. He was super anti war. Um, he goes off to, I think it was Binghamton, then Princeton, kind of climbing the ranks, wants to be an academic. Um, and he had a pretty hard time getting a PhD. It took him 13 years, but he said it was basically because no one at Princeton wanted to read his stuff because it was too kind of, critical of the ways that uh you know zionist history israeli history had been distorted to kind of make israel look better um and then basically he bursted onto the scene by fucking ethering this woman named joan peters in an academic sense and ayani has i have prepared a lot on that affair yeah so we can just hop right into it i figure right so basically the reason why i kind of went into all this background this is going to be a good little bit of history but i think it's important it's really key to i think understanding the context of israel that like of of the state of israel of the things that happened kind of recently and also in the context of like norm really kind of came into uh the public eye by just fucking setting this book on fire basically um i also want to acknowledge that we're uh we're calling him Norm, and we acknowledge that that is overly familiar of us, um, and we're going to do it <laughs> Professor anyway. Finkelstein! He- no. I would feel like I could call him Professor Finkelstein to his face, but if we're just going to talk about him, Norm. Broken. <laughs> so, on uh, April 29th, 1936, one Joan Friedman was born to a Chicago parents whose names weren't in the Wikipedia and don't really matter much <laughs> See to the story. Uh, and it doesn't really seem like she wrote them down anywhere. Uh, not a crazy amount to go off in her early childhood, but she did basically go to study at University of Illinois. She this is not... the woman. Sorry, this is the woman who wrote we'll the book that. that he. Okay, we'll sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah. I am hopping ahead, and yeah. he, the man, has a show. Let him get on with it. So, that this woman Joan basically went to the University of Illinois. Did not finish her degree. Don't knock it. I never finished my. I never started a degree. I didn't even finish a semester of community college. Um, 
And uh, but basically, she she had a knack for writing, so she ended up being uh, hired to write for a freelance for a lot of different magazines. Some of them are uh, well known, like Harper's or whatever. Mostly writing about politics, history, culture, and then Judaism. Judaism. At some point in her career, she was assigned to uh, do a story in the Soviet Union, where, uh, as you might imagine. Her and her Jewish husband were not really like looked at that kindly with by the Soviet officials. Anyone who knows any Jew from that area uh, is probably not surprised. By Russians, that. not famous Jew lovers. The Soviet Union, not famous Jew lovers. No, but Norm's parents loved the Soviet Union anyway. Interesting. Right, and I think yeah. that's just because they didn't have to be Jewish in the Soviet Union. Fair, they, yeah. They have to be <laughs> Jewish like because of it, but not yeah in it. They yeah they got to, the Soviet Union. Uh, liberated them and then they went to america so i think it's a little bit of a different context i have a fun little kgb uh anecdote that i know of of someone that i i grew up with but we'll get there if at some point maybe um so basically at that point after dealing with these soviet officials i imagine it was probably like a lot of questioning at the airport and whatever because this is like a, a white woman who's not really used to having to do stuff like that to be honest, she became to, quote, believe more strongly in the importance of a viable Jewish homeland. That quote comes from her daughter in a Haaretz article. And in the article, and what her daughter is saying that in particular, going to the Soviet Union made her think that uh, Israel, thumbs up, more of it, yes, please. Joan's greatest work to the overall consciousness of America uh, was definitely, without a doubt, an extremely controversial book titled from time immemorial the origins of the arab jewish conflict over palestine she claims to have researched the topic and written the book after her experiences reporting on the yom kippur war in israel pause everyone take a break okay that's this woman joan peters she was born joan friedman she became joan peters when she got married soviet union blah 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 I don't want to get too into the weeds of this, but we kind of do have to understand the context of what war she was covering. Uh, The Yom Kippur War. It's got a lot of other names, too. I think the most non-political name would be the 1973 Arab-Israeli War. Yom Kippur War does does really uh, put the Jewish spin on it. Yeah. Um, And I think, yeah, like I said, I think I got taught that this was kind of like a sneak attack – war that got right. launched out like, of nowhere. Like, how can you do that? We're so hungry. Yeah. Well, how can you on... do that to us? My tummy is rumbling. <laughs> I think it was, uh, but I think there is a certain amount of truth to that in the sense that uh, Israeli intelligence did not believe that, like, a war was really about to start. And Israel though... was pretty freshly created at this point. Like, yeah, it's 20 1973. Years old. Yeah. Ish? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I thought you said it was, I was thinking 67. Um, My bad. 67 is what happens before this. Um <laughs> Israel wars, diamond dozen, you know. So, uh, on the geopolitical end of all of this, basically, Israel had just captured the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights from Egypt and Syria, respectively, in the previous war, the Six Day War, in which a coalition of Arab nations uh, attacked Israel. I believe, not sure about that, did do a whole lot of research into it. It did not go well. People were unprepared, um, and Israel ended up taking a lot of territory, um, probably bringing it up to full New Jersey size. Um, <laughs> it's we've reached full jersey um so obviously syria and egypt were not particularly thrilled about the fact that they had lost territory and also keep in mind too at this point syria and egypt are also pretty newly minted countries um since this is all after world war ii and the 
a dismantling of the British Empire. Like, Fuck, we're not even as big as New Jersey anymore. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> oh, Egypt is quite a bit bigger. Um, so is Syria. True. So what's an interesting thing is eventually Israeli government internally voted that basically there had been so many conflicts that they were probably going to at some point concede the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights back to their respective countries in exchange for the ability to deal with them directly diplomatically because full shot. It's also like the start of the Cold War and whatever. So, and the Arab nations and the Israelis don't like to talk to each other directly. So, everything is being mediated through either the Soviet Union or the United States of America, who obviously have their own fucking way grander world domination schemes at large. Yeah. Untrustworthy. Yeah. Brokers. So, basically, what ended up happening with that, though, is that they voted for it internally. The Knesset was like, yeah, we'll deal with Arab nations. No one bothered to tell anyone, though, so that became like a moot point. Um, The reason this is interesting, though, is because uh, Egypt just got this new president whose name was Anwar Sadat, who basically formed a coalition of Arab nations that would said, look, with the help of the Soviet Union, we will, you know, we'll take back the land that we we lost and uh, there's a famous point at the summit where they basically say that there's going to be no negotiations of any kind with Israel. A lot of people in the modern age will go back to that summit to be like, look, they don't even want to engage with us uh, on any level. It should be noted that King Hussein of Jordan was like, well, maybe we could talk to them a little bit. Um, <laughs> I say that, though, because he comes up later. Uh, I'm not going to try to whitewash this guy. I mean, kings and fucking presidents and all of that are fucking scumbags and they sacrifice the lives of their people for no reason, which he will do later. Um a lot of people also argue that this is basically like Israel extending an olive branch first. That's a little bit of an inaccuracy because, like I said, no one bothered to tell anyone that they were willing to concede any of these things. So to make a long s- series of diplomatic hoo short, basically uh, the only option – so that basically said, look, war is going to happen after there was a brief attempt to kind of negotiate these things. But Henry Kissinger, surprise, surprise, was not really dealing with good faith towards uh, – Egypt or any of the other Arab nations because it's kind of a Kissinger's thing. gonna Kissinger. Um <laughs> Kissinger, I hardly know it. Yeah. And uh basically uh he basically told the the Soviet Union, like, look, give me all these weapons, we'll take this thing back. Soviet Union's like, uh, Middle East, pretty dicey. Uh <laughs> I don't really wanna get into it with the uh United States over there. So they say no, and everyone thinks, boom, that's the end of it. Uh, so that kind of has other plans and he's like, eh, but what if we, uh, what if we just did that? Um, so he basically starts to train all these units and whatever. And the Soviet union keeps saying, oh, it's, it's not us. We're not doing it. So everyone is kind of just like, oh, he's not going to go full Buklau on war because he's got nobody to back him up. Um, but instead this guy Sadat puts together a coalition of a ton of Arab nations, including Syria and Jordan, all of whom have various degrees of commitment towards this war that is essentially for Syria and Egypt's behalf, right? Because they're the ones who lost territory. Algeria is like, hell yeah. And they're like, how much are you going to send? And they're like, we'll send tanks maybe someday. Got a palette of really nice tents that I think you guys would love. Kind of, kind of, yeah. Um, It's also at this point that King Hussein actually flies into uh, Israel in secret to warn them that like, hey, look, this is going to go down. Uh, you know, I think he was just not super interested in like the entire region devolving into complete fucking chaos and uh, destruction. Because also at this point too, 
for context of the modern listeners who, who might not remember, what we're talking about is some very conventional, like just after World War II warfare. So everything's tanks, bombers, fighter jets. Like there is no way to conduct this kind of war on a small scale. So no matter what happens, even if the the war lasts three weeks or whatever, whatever happens is whatever is in between these two armies is going to be utterly destroyed. Um, and you can actually still see photos in all of these different fronts of just tanks that are abandoned, aircraft that fucking got shot down, and they just fucking sit there forever and probably poison the soil underneath. I'm going to kind of keep paraphrasing a little bit more, but one of the reasons why this uh, war became so 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 much of a big deal was because the IDF sort of refused to take seriously the uh, the fact that these nations were putting together armies. Um, and at the very start of the war, essentially a huge part of the Sinai Peninsula is lost. Uh, an enormous amount of the Golan Heights is lost. And this was all basically because the IDF was like, we're the military power of the Middle East. No one can fuck with us. And then they got pretty severely fucked with. Um, eventually, the tides did turn and whatever. Um, so did the U.S. ever get in, in yeah. there? Or? The U.S. did not really put in a, a ton of like people and things, but they were constantly flying over equipment, uh, you know, doing what we mm-hmm. honestly do best. Right. Which logistics. is just having better tanks, having a more intense logistic system. Excuse me. Logistic system where we can decide that, oh, there's fucking 30 tanks in Japan that aren't doing anything. Why don't we just drop them off in the middle of the fucking Negev? Like, we can do that because we're a superpower imperialist nation that, you know, other people just can't do it. So the real con or real important thing about this whole war, I think, is because is to take away rather that Joan would have taken away at this point is this was really a evening of the playing field. Because at this point, uh, everyone sort of understood or it was understood they thought that Israel was the military power of the Middle East because it had the backing of the U.S. And it didn't matter if the Soviet Union backed Jordan, backed Syria, backed Egypt, and they got support from Iraq and they got whatever. It didn't matter because the technology was so much better and the balance of power was so great that Israel could not be fucked with. And this is the war that definitely changes that idea. Because there was a good – there were like whole Israeli brigades that were wiped out and and things like that. And that was just something that hadn't happened yet in the history of the country. So that's kind of the context that Joan Peters is kind of reporting on and coming into as this, oh, yeah, we need to have this viable Jewish homeland. And then all of a sudden in a very conventional way, there's a real threat of that not being the case. Mm -hmm. So it's like her her great fear comes to pass where it's like – Essentially. Or it's just fragile. The idea of the – the Jewish state's very fragile in her right. world. You know, like. and, and she, it doesn't really seem like she had any of the context that I have via, you know, the history fucking at this point, almost 50 years later of just like, yeah, people knew about this shit. And like, there was a lot going on. She's kind of just there reporting. So that kind of gets her to write this book from time immemorial, which, uh, man, uh, I would say the chief claim of Joan Peters' book is one that we are very unfortunately all familiar with. Joan's thesis is basically that the Palestinian identity is a fabrication that was uh, concocted by basically a bunch of uh, Saudi Arabian, Egyptian, and Syrian immigrants as a means of co-opting the Jewish identity to conquer the land that we know as Israel slash Palestine. Um, a total crock. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like I don't need to mention, but I will mention that not only is this idea 
uh, racist. It's also inaccurate. And it's also uh, it's wildly dismissive of the small amount of Jewish people who have actually lived on that land for centuries. And she's just like, yeah, but fuck them. And it's like this kind of almost diabolical inversion of the truth where it's like the is the identity of Israel as like a modern nation state is the thing that was actually invented by kicking tons of people by some estimates, like 750,000 indigenous Palestinians out of that land to then establish it. So it's sort of like, I don't know. It's like that amazing thing that people do and they're trying to justify something outrageous where they just say like the pure opposite of the truth. And are like Another claim that I think is very worth noting because you will hear people make this claim to this day all of the time, including such fuckery boys as like Ben Shapiro or whatever, that uh, to both. So basically she asserts that the land of Palestine was essentially barren since the Ottoman Empire captured the territory and the Palestinians only began to exist or claim to exist after the Jewish immigrant population had restored fertility to the land. Um. This is everyone a, knows Ottomans. They yeah. they don't know how to farm. They don't know how to eat. This is a a greater extension of the overall idea behind colonial nations that we get from our friends in Europe, which is basically that whatever is happening on a land doesn't count until white people start doing it. And I say white people in particular because I don't even think she means to. But Joan, uh, whatever her fucking name, Joan is. Rivers. Joan Rivers. <laughs> <laughs> Joan Peterson clearly believes that Jews are white. I mean, Joan Rivers and Joan Peterson share do share a lot of beliefs. <laughs> R.I.P. to um, Joan, at the least. Is, is is Peters alive and kicking? No, she's dead. After what our boy Norman did to her, I... I got a lot of this information I, from her obituary. Um, <laughs> rest in peace. It's, the, it's that one meme of the guy, like, <laughs> like squatting next to a yeah. tombstone, but it's Norm next to... Shout yeah. out to my biggest haters. <laughs> right, exactly. So like I said, basically, to put it, to sum it up, From Time Immemorial is, in its essence, a pretty insane and unhinged inversion of a creation myth that combines the worst aspects of nativist manifest destiny with a particularly racist disdain for Arabs and tops it off with a complete erasure of Mizrahi Jews that have been living on the land contiguously for centuries. And also she kind of, dog- like, fudged the statistics. She fudges So it's not just, like, an opinion piece. It's like, a, I did the research in it. She proves- claims to have done the research on a lot of primary and secondary sources and does what I would best describe as a freshman college level editing of the quotes that they may state what she wants to state and also, not necessarily what they are stating. From Time Immemorial, is that what it's called? Yeah. That sounds like the name of a screamo band. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it sounds like the name of a bad movie. Time Immemorial. <laughs> time Immemorial. Time Immemorial. So, I'm going to wrap this up pretty quick, but I think it really needs to be stated that when from Time Immemorial, uh, was released in the United States, people went buklau for it. They fucking loved it. People were saying that it was one of the best researched pieces in uh, in recent history, which is going to be ironic later. Many of the movers and shakers of the world in high academia in the U.S. Uh, and journalism uh, praised its radical reframing, quote-unquote, of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Various Jewish and non-Jewish scholars praised Peter's unmatched skill in research, and it won the National Book Award in 1985—or, sorry, I need to be a little bit more uh, careful. It won the National Jewish Book Award Uh-oh. in 1985 <laughs> in the category— you want to guess? Jewish isn't another category. Dogs are always wrong. Jesus Christ! 
just it's a, I mean, that's, the people who liked her book i mean that's they were waiting for something to justify like that so opinion what's, that the, what's the category the category is israel um, Sydney Zion, who is the co-author of Roy Cohn's autobiography, that's oh! <laughs> called oh! it, quote, the intellectual equivalent of the Six-Day War. Does that mean it's good or bad? <laughs> that means that he thought it was very good because the Six-Day War was the war where Israel took all the, to the territory from Syria. Oh. That was like the war and where he, so it's just, that's just him the being, background. Yeah. That I was, was just like, wow, yeah. Just like rolling. Oh, Jesus rolling Christ. Heavy. That, yeah. The way that that war uh, went is why the IDF essentially did not respond to the threat of these this coalition coalition army coming into its borders because they were like, six day war, bitch. We fucking The six day war it. was the 67 one. Yeah. We finished that shit hella quick. And then, yeah. And I'll, so, should we get to where Norm fits into all this? Or I, don't, I would love nothing more. Right there. Basically, the only things I would actually really like to to mention is uh, the reception of this book because of Norman Finkelstein's work in the UK was not viewed so favorably. Um, and I think it's also very interesting that Israeli academia did not really view this book particularly favorably either, because I think they are much more on the ground when it comes down to who these people are and how long they've existed there. And they were particularly unimpressed with the way she used the primary sources, because uh, a lot of people at that point would have either been at the very least alive. Some of them were fully cognizant humans when a lot of these primary sources were being written down. Right. You can't really, yeah. <laughs> can't be too fast and loose. So that's where we get to, that's really where we get to okay, Norm so coming just, in. Sorry for that digression, but I do think you actually really need to. It's like very complicated situation. She writes a, sh- a shitty book. Yeah. And then he writes a dissertation saying that her book sucks, basically. Not, Not just saying that it sucks. Like he like, he like tears dismantles her whole line. life, yeah, in an <laughs> academic sense, being like, right. "I'm about to end he, this man's whole life." Yeah, pretty much. So he like talks about how. So he was like in his young days, he was like a, a fervent Maoist, and then he had this whole kind of like crisis of faith once like Mao and his supporters are out of power and he's like damn like i was duped and like i really thought that they were gonna like you know make the socialist utopia and then it didn't happen and so then he was like i basically i'm never gonna be made a fool of again and so he realized like once he started to want to know about israel he was just like i'm gonna know literally everything about it and so he checked joan peters's book he read it four times he read all the citations and then he was just like oh this is just a fraud and he proved it pretty conclusively yeah um, you will still like the only people who you really see at this point referencing from time immemorial are like straight up fucking right wing, uh, propagandists, uh, fascists, the people who are fully in the, like you're the, the people who don't need from time immemorial to believe what they believe. Does that make sense? Yeah. Ironically enough, some of those same people would also come to like some of our boy Norman's work yeah, for very different. What the cancel culture shit? No, like the, well, he has a book called the Holocaust industry, um, um, which is in a, a very, it's a, it's an interesting premise. I think a lot of the criticism of it too. A lot of the criticisms of Norm Finkelstein will be accurate in the adjectives they use to describe him, <laughs> but not on the matter that they seem to be addressing. Yeah, no, totally. I feel like he's like, um, you know how people talk about like horseshoe theory of like left and right, like at a certain extreme, like meeting again, right. he's like, just like skateboarding around that, like horseshoe, like sure. half pipe sort of absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yep. where he's just like kind of all over the place. Um, okay. So that 
brings us to the other probably so i feel like the time memorial thing is like is like norm's first act that's like his like this is his breakout moment where he basically it's a big deal because not only is it like oh who's this young handsome upstart with a shitty voice who's dude he's we he's so handsome for he's how he's pretty good looking he's yeah. pretty good looking his voice is what like you would think Alan Dershowitz his voice would be yeah and then but he kind of looks like he could drop fox. you like I feel like he looks like kind of an old man who maybe boxes to stay in shape yeah oh and yeah. like got in fist fights as a teenager in New York yeah um, he lives in Coney Island so he's like sort of tan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that definitely like to that puts it why he's also a breakout star too is because for the like first year or so that this book came out, everyone in the U.S. was talking about how this will reframe like Israeli educate or Israeli American education on the Israel Palestine conflict and whatever, and everyone is basically shitting their pants about this book and. That's why it's such a big deal that he came out and just basically said, like, everything in this fucking book is not just a lie. It's inaccurate and I can prove it and I can prove it using the sources that she wrote. And it's sort of like almost like a willful lie or like at least he's suspicious of the eagerness to accept what seemed like pretty far off from the historical record. Um, So, yeah, so that's kind of what brings him. Sorry, were you going to say something earlier? I didn't want to. No, I. I forgot. It's probably something about how Norm is hot. <laughs> he is. He's got pecs. Yeah, you can see it under that suit. Yeah, and there's a scene where he's he's shirtless. I think. Oh, know, he swims in the, in in the, the dock. Yeah. We watched the documentary about him, and he oh, does yeah, he take is. off his little. He's like, "Hey, look at these. Are these my nips? You're just gonna have to do a little paper on that to find out." <laughs> Check the primary sources. <laughs> he doesn't say that. Yes, they are his um, nipples. They're real facts only. Um, okay, so yeah, so that like introduces him to the public after kind of struggling in academia to like even get a PhD and like get a you know letter of rec. This like cements like okay, you know maybe people aren't quite excited Ready. to see what he has to say, but at the very least, he's established himself as kind of a legit scholar. He calls it, or I've seen other people call it, being a forensic scholar. Yeah. So like he's uh he's also like pretty good friends with Noam Chomsky and yeah. He, Chomsky kind of let him know that, like, look, if you're going to go down this path, like, it's the right thing to do, but you're going to, it's going to fuck you in the end. I don't think Chomsky used those words, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, And so then the second thing, probably the thing he's most well known for now is his, like, 10 year war (laughs) against Alan Dershowitz. The Dersh beef. It should have been a six day war. It was, in fact, a 10 day (laughs) war. Yes. Um, yeah, so Alan Dershowitz is a pretty interesting guy. He is simultaneously one of kind of like the most decorated modern civil rights lawyers. And he's just like a big wig who loves inserting himself and being all over TV. Wait, what's, what's he, what civil rights shit did he do again? He actually, so I, I had only known kind of like late stage Dershowitz, like Epstein era (laughs) Dershowitz, but, um, he's actually a pretty like. Not just like, oh, you know, he had one or two moments. He's like kind of like a legend. Like he was involved in all these kind of like iconic First Amendment cases. So like defending the right of Nazis to march through Skokie, Illinois. Oh, good. <laughs> which is like, um, I mean, but I mean, it's pretty significant. For it's what, significant. In yeah. a sense, because Skokie, like a lot of Holocaust survivors lived there. He defended early pornography screenings. He... Okay. Did, he did, so he, All right. So he was just kind of like in the thick of like First Amendment stuff for a while. He was and I like, do believe that he's one of those people who's kind of like the convictions are 
like, this is what I believe. It's about the principle of it. And I think it's also why he's more open to criticism later in his life. Yes, yes. But anyway, so he, like, is this kind of legal hotshot. He ends up being, like, the youngest professor ever at Harvard Law, blah, blah, blah. And he kind of takes this... And he takes this sort of weird turn where he starts, like, defending men accused of doing horrible things to women. So, like, defending OJ, defending Mike Tyson. Like, defending them in court? Yes. Defending uh, Epstein, defending Trump, defending Weinstein. Now, okay, that's a fucking list. I mean, it's like a murderer's row of, like, legendary fucked up people to defend in court. Yeah. Is that just because he got so famous that like when that that he got to the point not just obviously he has to say yes to these things but is it part of it just that like when you talk about the best money can buy he is, is the he, best is he okay that's he is like the best he's also just yeah he's like kind of this celebrated like liberal intellectual guy he's kind of like synonymous with harvard so he's just like a kind of an influential figure. public figure totally loves okay. being on tv a really lively interview. So I think it's he's a real bad trait for a lawyer. I'm just going to say, no, it. but it kind of isn't though. I mean, I don't know for these, for if you're defending celebrities, you kind no, of no, need no. to I know how to play job, the game. It's, it's great. I think for society. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, like he's just this kind of like high profile guy. Um, and the Epstein thing is like a whole other can of worms, but basically like he helped Epstein avoid prosecution. And he's also been accused himself of being part of the uh, sex, can, of, of having sex with underage women in Epstein's circles, which he denies. Uh, but he was like, no, I only got massages there, which is... Okay, that's... Wow. Famous last words. Um, um, so anyway, like... And so outside of all this stuff, outside of being the hotshot lawyer guy, outside of being the defender of celebrity, uh, quote-unquote, alleged... Um, harassers and rapists some of those are not alleged anymore yeah i guess that's true not alleged anymore um he also because he's a high profile jew in america has like decided to insert himself into the israel palestine palestine peace process um in 2003 he writes a book called the case for israel um which is like his his special argument for why there should be a two-state solution he kind of frames it as like i'm a liberal like you know, I'm thoughtful. I actually have a heart. I'm not just some like, you know, militaristic Yahoo, but like, here's how I think we can make this thing happen. Um, and to help make his case in his book, he refers to our good friend, Joan Peters. <laughs> he borrows a lot of her work. He quotes her all the time. He like quotes her quoting Mark Twain. Yes. Her, her, he, it would be one thing if a couple times he just kind of mentioned that book because it was a pretty influential book right it seems like he goes a little whole hog on uh yes joan peters's claims which also i think when i was reading about his book a little bit too it struck me as particularly sinister and i think probably norm picked up on that too which is he's he is doing what you're saying like look i'm a reasonable person we can find some kind of solution to it but he's also coming from it at the premise that the palestinian identity is essentially a fabrication maybe don't exist some other claims yeah. in the book are sort of like well you know like nobody has ever accused the idf of torturing people or targeting civilians even though pretty mainstream human rights organizations were like yeah actually they uh, there's pretty good evidence they did both of those things 
Um, so anyway, so he's like writing this book since he's the Dersh, like everyone loves it. It's, you know, he's like on the talk show circuit. I'm sure fucking Terry Gross was probably talking to him being like, Mr. Dershowitz. In a different room. Um, yeah, Terry in a Gross different room. She does not like to be yeah, in the same which room honestly, as her I respect really? it. Yeah, she doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, hardcore. She does it over Zoom, or she just like has them like stand. No, they, they're, there's like they're so you, in a studio. She's yeah. in a studio. You can kind of make it work. Oh, weird. Because she's like, I don't want to be compromised by looking them. You know, by them like giving me a little grin or whatever, which I kind of respect. <laughs> oh, yeah, I but also that's because she's insane. But no, I mean I've heard her explain it. Where like you know, if you're interviewing some celeb, they would just like use their celeb powers to charm oh, you. IRL. Oh shit, she's kind of doing um, a little distance. Oh, what's his name? He's she's like uh, Sam from Lord of the Rings, like won't put on the ring, even though sometimes he has to carry it because his owner, I guess. Frodo's. She's like, I don't want to if I get in the same room as Joseph Gordon Levitt, like I'm going to smell him and it's going <laughs> to make it so that I can't ask unbiased questions. I, so. I'm compromised. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, he probably smells weird. Nah, I bet he smells great. Um, so anyway, OK, so again, why are we talking about some random fucking guy again? Well, we got Alan Dershowitz. He writes this book. Um, by this point, uh, Norman Finkelstein, for like the only time in his life, has found a stable academic work at DePaul in Chicago. Um, you know, he's a forensic scholar. He's what um, Brace Belden on the Trunon podcast, he called him the footnote sniper. So he like sees another piece of bullshit. Did I say his name wrong, Ian? No, no, you got oh, it. No, no, no. Footnote uh, snipers is uh, funny. Footnote sniper is very yeah, funny. Yeah, he's the, he like he is the footnote sniper. You could hear that and for a second think that was cool. Uh-huh. Um, and so he sees another piece of what he thinks is kind of like just bad scholarship that's being used for bad politics and bad ends for real people in Palestine. And so then he basically is like, I'm gonna destroy Alan Dershowitz the same way. It sh- it should be noted too that he has uh he went to excuse me he went to Palestine and has friends there and has been going and at that point had been going for a number of years. He goes like once a year, not yeah. like oh I went once. Yeah. And for the express purposes of essentially just uh seeing how it is on the other side quite literally. Mm-hmm. Um so he it's it's not like he just suddenly randomly was like I did this once before I'll bet you I can do it again. It's like he's right. got a he's got a personal interest in this too. Yeah, he's like he's the genuine article. Like he yeah. truly cares about this shit. He kind of knows everything about it. But that I mean that kind of brings us to the we could I kind of want to jump to just the, the it, this all culminates with a debate on democracy oh, now. It sure does between the Dersh and the Fink and <laughs> the fact I guess so much of. Finkelstein's argument in the debate with Dershowitz is about like plagiarism and shit where it's like it feels so it feels so weird because it's like he has these real life connections with like people who live in Gaza and live in the West Bank and he like can't stop talking about like nerd shit. Well, yeah, no, he's like uh, he he literally can't help himself. Like he has like a compulsion, I think he's he's I I honestly truly believe he's that big of a nerd. That yeah. He's just like, oh, I know how to fucking dunk on this idiot. Should we summarize the debate? Well, yeah. So like in the debate, he just keeps pointing to these sort of like again, like forensic kind of things that you'd only really notice if you were obsessively, he's like, oh, I looked. I read it four times. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he's like 1,850 footnotes. I read them all. I read the materials they were referring to. Like, that's just kind of how he talks. But also, I just want to, like, position to the the audience. Imagine... Te- like yelling at an enemy 
I read your book four times. And you're like, right next to him. It's so crazy. <laughs> to his face. But yeah, so he's like, oh, you know, I noticed in your book and in the Peter's book, the ellipsis is in the exact same place. On the Mark like, Twain quote. On this Like Twain. real who gives a shit stuff. But to him, it matters because he's like trapped. In, I don't know. To me, well, like, that's how I read it. it. Really it's like not just it's like both that. And then there's the stuff about like you said. Because, like, Dershowitz is kind of, like, a cocky guy. So he on some other NBC show, he's like, I'll give $10,000 to the Palestinian Liberation Organization yep. if someone can find one factual error. And then, of course, Finkelstein's like, I have 12. Oh, yeah. So you're saying that this is just him, like, trying to secure the bag for the PLO? No, more no. just like, to get more just like Dersh is so confident in that he did a great thing. And then he was going up against the footnote sniper who is like, you said that no one's ever accused them of torture. Like, there's actually really clear evidence they did it. But then it it, it gets into this weird minutia where, like, they're screaming at each other about nothing. Where, like, the error that Norm finds is, is like... It, it's, like, so minor uh, as to almost not be plagiarism. Right, and then... Like, if you take a quote that someone else quotes, but it's a famous quote, and it's you a, also it's, quote it accurately, like, are you plagiarizing... Uh, no, maybe. it's something that you would put as like uh, not as your uh, like volley in terms of like an academic debate and whatever, but it'd be, it'd be something you put in the minds of whoever your audience is. Yeah, where you're like, hey, look, this is inaccurate. This is inaccurate, and like, I don't know, man, all those ellipses are kind of in the same spot. You fucking make the but it, the yeah. Decision. But anyway, so from these fucking two cranky guys talking on the Democracy Now radio show, it turns into this war. Well, yeah, it's a screen. First of all, the Democracy Now thing, unwatchable. Yeah, it's, I watched it all. <laughs> I watched it all, too. I, I oh listened to it all. You know, yeah. when I was watching it, too, as I was driving, I was just like listening to it. Um, and I was navigating a very stressful set of like overpasses and stuff. Like, Hell I just, yeah. just didn't know where I was. I was like, ah, like, what the fuck's going on? Like, just, <laughs> my blood pressure was like going nuts. Two <laughs> fucking Jewish <laughs> academics going, excuse me, no. Yeah, excuse no, me, no. no. I allowed you to voice your <laughs> disagreement. You will give me mine. <laughs> my favorite, the part that made me laugh the hardest is, because first of all, several times uh, Dersh brings up Noam Chomsky, and it's very adorable how every time Norm is like, you leave him out of this, please. (laughs) Keep Noam Chomsky's name out your mouth. (laughs) But then at one point, like, Dersh mentions Chomsky, and Norm is like, you're debating me, not him. And then Dersh makes the, like, just such a classic dumb guy joke. He just goes like, Oh, I thought I was debating Noam Chomsky. Uh, <laughs> and then is just yeah, Norm is smug. like, this is serious. <laughs> yeah, Norm. Which, kinda, no, it's not. It's not serious. Um, so anyway, I think it would also be worth noting that in the documentary, without a doubt, the most hilarious moment within the documentary, which is a serious documentary. It pans, oh, it's called uh, Norman Finkelstein's Trials of an American Radical. Thank you. Um, yeah. after, after they sort of let some of this fucking unlistenable bit of radio just sort of vomit itself on you it cuts to an interview they're having with noam chomsky and he just goes yeah i kind of told norman later that i didn't think he should really like hone in on that whole plagiarism thing but you know he's allowed to do what he wants yeah right it's like (laughs) as you were saying like he had real scholarly factual things that he could get him on and he was like you put the period in the wrong place i don't know if everyone would agree with this but i'm just speaking from the heart here plagiarism who cares it's fine it's okay i mean i think uh i think I th- no, I think Not in, really, a, in, a certain, like... in a certain sense, Norm is making a good point in the sense that he's saying, you're saying that this is a serious 
look at this situation and you're plagiarizing from what I've already proven to be an incredibly unserious. It is very funny for we were talking about this earlier for Norm to have years earlier, like debunked this book. And then he's debating this guy and he's like, first of all, you stole all of this. And I already debunked the thing that he stole <laughs> yeah, it you from. You stole it from a piece of shit book. Yeah, yeah. really? He should have been like, why Fucking is one of your primary... Really, he should have been out there just being like, why is one of your primary sources right. this fucking book that I took apart for my dissertation uh-huh. before I was even a fucking professor? Yeah. But so anyway, like... So but instead, when, he's Mark Twaining it. Yeah, is, like when Norm goes after Joan Peters, who's just like, you know, an acclaimed author, like, you know, he kind of wins in the war of ideas and like his life is better for it. But in this case, he's going up against like a very influential guy very influential friends, you know, one of the most well-known academics in the country. Fucking his clients, OJ, man. Yeah, right. OJ, Trump, Epstein. Like, these are not, you know, just run-of-the-mill people that Alan Dershowitz, like, runs in the same circle with. I just robbed a couple liquor stores. No big deal. Yeah, right. He's not getting you off of, like, out of a car ticket. Um, And so then Dershowitz basically launches a kind of lobbying campaign to rail against Norman Finkelstein getting tenure. Because even though he's kind of, like, a, a fairly prominent guy, he's never had, a like, a stable full-time academic employment no he suffers from i only know this because my brother is pretty seriously in academia he suffers from like when people are doing basically some like very very forward thinking very cutting edge research and theorizing and whatever they just run into this yeah because uh, you know academic institutions are institutions they have to be they have to get paid at the end of the day and if you're talking about fucking hey maybe this whole israel thing is kind of a lot more complicated and has you know is not as cut and dry as we've been thinking for the last 30 years and that might piss off a lot of people most universities are going to be like piss off yeah, a lot of people or like maybe Not everyone really you respect is wrong yeah and i've proved it and it's like i don't want that so anyway like dershowitz like lobbies depaul the university where finkelstein teaches he tries to get this book that finkelstein wrote in response tries to get it to stop it from being published so you know this is a yeah. again a a lauded civil rights First Amendment lawyer trying to stop the publication of a book before it happens. He writes a letter to Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger to try and get Schwarzenegger to stop it from being published by the University of California. One of my favorite parts of this whole saga. He's like, I don't want to really be a part of this. (laughs) Literally, yeah, he was just kind of like, (laughs) yeah, he's like, ooh, Nazis. uh." You can see, especially for someone in my position, this is extremely sensitive. (laughs) Pretty much. He was just like, yeah, like, you guys figure this out. Like, I'm not going to be involved in this. Um, but what's crazy, what I was struck by about this, in addition to just like, imagine hating someone that bad that you try and get them out of a job like that was like, students weren't just like, Oh, you know, like, I'm gonna make a Facebook post saying we love Al, you know, we love Norman Finkelstein, they were like, doing hunger strikes on campus. It was like a huge kind of like, moment well because i think a, a a thing that's really important that you i think miss in the documentary too is uh he's one at this point too in like the uh the early 90s and all that well i guess some of the, a lot of the, what we're talking about is like 2000s or whatever he might be one of the only he might be the only prominent jewish voice in academia sympathizing with the palestinians Right, like um, low bar, but also still a big deal. It's still kind of a big deal, especially for yeah. people who are like less, uh, uh, you know, involved with it. Like, you know, we we grew up Jewish. We're kind of uh, we get sort of fed the the some of its propaganda, the all the stuff about Israel, or whatever. For people who are just kind of learning about it and don't really know, they'll run into this 
you know, weird cognitive dissonance where it's like, well, we learned about this thing and when they were doing it, it was bad. But when Israel's doing it, it's like, okay, for some reason. And he's one of the only Jewish voices in academia saying, no, 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 you're right. It's bad. Yeah. And he's just like, honestly, he's like exceptionally Jewish. He has the name. Yeah. He's the son of Holocaust survivors. So he just has this sort of like unimpeachable quality. So anyway, like Dershowitz basically wins. Like he, he, yep. the, the faculty of DePaul recommends keeping Finkelstein on, but ultimately the president and some of the higher, higher ups decide not to give him the job. Right. And they say, basically, it's not exactly because you're a bad scholar. It's because we don't like like the tone, like how you attack other people. Um, it goes against our values. It's not a fair argument for why he should not be a tenured professor. It is a fair argument <laughs> for why you might not want to ever listen to him. Yeah, or like have him over at your house. Like, yeah. I don't know if I'd want to hang with him, but like, I think. Oh, I very much want him on the pod, to yeah. be clear. But <laughs> it seems like that might be a reality. It, I mean, listen, I listen, I've this week doing research about this man. I listened to a lot of podcasts where he was a guest and a lot of them seem like they're just some guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, like, so this kind of is like maybe the first seminal moment in his life is like being the son of Holocaust survivors. And then the second seminal moment in his life is like being booted from academia for having takes that were both too hot and like too factually accurate. Yeah. And he kind of like for the rest of his life has this huge chip on his shoulder. I think fairly understandably that basically like he like most people who say they've been canceled hasn't. But he literally like has never gotten tenure again. He his livelihood has drastically changed. And like, again, it wasn't because they were like the things you're saying in your books are wrong. It's just because like we don't like your style. We don't like your. He did literally get fucking shat on by the academic establishment and the only reason they had for him was really alan dershowitz is not a huge fan of you and, and like yeah. that's and that's dude that's legitimately fucked up totally oh, it's yeah. all very fucked yeah i mean and and like i i just mean that for anyone who's just kind of like oh yeah he's pretty much a uh fucking dick and yeah he is he's not a particularly pleasant person but again that's not a reason for him not to be a professor. My understanding also, as someone who hasn't been to college, is it seems like a lot of professors are just fucking assholes. Yeah. Oh, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry. I wanted to add one more thing about the Dershowitz pressure campaign. Sure. Is that he he said on an official Harvard, like, .edu, like, webpage, like, he put out some statement claiming that Norman Finkelstein's mom was a Holocaust collaborator. What? Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's got, I didn't I missed that in my research. Like, that's dark as fuck. Because he he Dersh said this. Well, so yeah, it's like it's a classic like kind of he said she said sort of interpretation thing. But in one of Norman Finkelstein's books, he talks about how in their neighborhood, in this like Jewish neighborhood, there was this kind of unspoken feeling that if you managed to survive the Holocaust. Like it was sort of a dirty thing. Like, what oh, made I've you heard him so talk lucky? about this. Yeah. Well, how did you manage to get away? That with a lot of people. I, I remember that from think uh, that if you survived the Holocaust, then you like collaborated with the, the yeah, opposite end of that. It's called survivor's guilt. I I remember. Uh, I was I I did a project when I was I think I did it twice uh, when I was in high school. That was all about. Uh, it's actually a really good program. I hope they still do it. It's got less legs now because more of those people are dying. Where you interview. Did, holocaust survivors and kind of like hear their story or whatever um and one of the the 
the woman that I um that I interviewed, she was never in the concentration camps because she fled Austria. She was Austrian. Uh early, early in the kind of like her and her family sort of read the writing on the wall, which was like, I don't think this is going to pan out well. And one of the things that she said that she kind of struggled with sometimes was like, I could have stayed back and fought. And like, and honestly and truly, she wasn't even subjected to like the, the, the worst of it. And at the same time, she still has that like survivor's guilt of like, maybe if more people like me had stopped and actually fought, maybe it never would have gotten legs. Yeah. So anyway, but this, so it's like it's a nuanced point that Finkelstein is making, saying basically like in that time in that neighborhood, like it wasn't something you really wanted to talk about because it was like a very complicated thing to have survived and made it to the U.S. And then also at, right after the Holocaust, I don't think anyone's really like yeah, into ooh, talking yeah, about let's, it. Let's just and it wasn't like the spilling your feelings era at the fucking as bodega. Anyway, fucking. yeah. So anyway, he's made this point, and then. Alan Dershowitz essentially takes it out of context and says, like, well, you know, he thought his own mom was a Nazi collaborator. That's fucking dark. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, like, on the one hand, like, Alan Dershowitz is this, like, famous, you know, First Amendment lawyer. But he, like, really gets down in the fucking muck and, like, is willing to. uh, No, he's a bad man. Yeah. He's willing to just, like, kind of do anything. There's also this weird part in the Democracy Now! interview where Dershowitz is kind of trying to make this point of, like. He's like, Israel doesn't do torture. Like, Israel only does things that the United States does, like putting a... <laughs> oh, well, okay, okay. Putting a, a stinky hood over <laughs> someone. Dude, it's crazy. He's like, yeah, yeah, all Israel does is stuff the U.S. does, like putting a stinky hood on someone's head and, like, torturing... Or he doesn't say to... He's like, just messing with them for a while with music or whatever he says, but he's like... Yeah. He basically does the weird, like, creepy... Like, he knows what he's doing, and he's like, if Israel does torture, then America does torture, and I know you're not going to say that, even though Norm would obviously say that. Yeah, I don't think Norm would be too uh, shy away from that. But honestly, they don't really get to any of that because no. they spend most of that fucking uh, interesting comma placement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're like too. Yeah, they like can't even get past it. But anyway, so like once he is denied tenure, it just sort of like ruins his life. He's really depressed. Yep. He can't get a great job, so he just has – he just – I mean he keeps writing books and like giving – Oh, boy, does he. he, he the man is prolific. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, we had a conversation off the pod, John and I, about prolific and how it's often used as a positive. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. not necessarily always no. positive. Prolific just means he goes and goes and goes. Yeah. So anyway, he's, he's got a lot like, of books and a lot of posts on his he blog. Just kept, yeah. He just kind of kept, kept in it, but never quite achieved like the level of prominence that he had because he was yeah. kind of denied that institutional platform. And then from there, I think he kind of developed, like, he already had a sort of like, not conspiratorial, but I think he he's aware that like there are a lot of fucking fakers when it comes to this stuff, yeah. and he sort of thinks everyone's a fake except for him. And yeah, so he I just, would say like, so. He, and he's just kind of he relishes a public skirmish. Oh sure. So he's just like in the mix, like just fighting about this. <laughs> John, absolute. you put it really well the other day, where after his whole tenure. Uh, kind of fell apart or whatever he really made the transition from like academic to public figure um yeah and like to entertainer even yeah yeah like he's just like he gets up in front of an audience and people go crazy for him yeah yeah and And they're like like, yeah (laughs) like 
Yeah. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, no matter what it's about, people love a good fucking bloodbath, even if it's intellectual. Yeah. And like, that's the one thing I will say about all of the like clips from the documentary is like it's it's people crying, it's him yelling, it's <laughs> it's a lot of people crying and him yelling. It's um, it's he- people booing. There's, I mean, it's a fucking spectacle, dog. Like, it is a big spectacle. I think, uh, it's I a think big we dumb get side show. His, uh, t- the two other takes of his, I was curious to discuss with you guys, are him on BDS and him on the Holocaust industry. Yeah, the Holocaust it. industry, I think, is worth diving into. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, it's, I think because I think oh, we'll just address the other one, the BDS one. I think his uh, his objection to it is one of technicality. Which should not be if you're listening to the rest of this episode. That surprising. He's the he's the footnote sniper, baby. Yeah, I think it's basically that. Like, the, I guess one of the key charters of the BDS movement originally was like the uh, abolishment of the state of Israel. Um, which, like, I I don't know if they put that in the sense of like, like it's it's hard to gauge what that is because at the core of the BDS movement is we're going to do this nonviolently. So it's like it stands for boycott, divestment, yeah. and sanctions. So it's kind of like and masochism. That's the last one, right? Just kidding. Um, <laughs> Great. Um, so I, I don't, I don't really know like how serious that is within their charter or, or anything like that. But that's basically what he takes issue with, which is he's basically on the level of like, I think what a lot of more reasonable people are is like the idea that basically these people cannot live side by side is one that is uh, is propagated by politics and not by reality. Um, and I think that's his main thing because he's Norman Finkelstein though. He has to go whole hog on it. So it has yeah. to be that like everything about BDS is fucking, cult. yeah, is dumb. He calls them a satanic cult, which is man. And I, that's, this is, this is like very late period, Norm. This is yeah. like 2012, 2015. Oh yeah. He's been acting up lately. <laughs> yeah, no, I just wanted to put it out there because that is like an inch, uh, a, a weird stance for him to take, but I think it is primarily just because of the like, well, we want to abolish the state of Israel. He's like, well, you can't. And I think not all people who believe in BDS believe in abolishing the state exactly. of Israel. Exactly. That's just what like I'm saying. At I'm some like, point, someone. It's just like a tactic, which is, yeah. Yeah. And he I, doesn't, he's not much one for talking about tactics. He, he'll, that's what no. I, that's one thing I wrote down is like in the documentary, he's talking about his worldview and how he's like, like basically like I'm a radical because like things as they are are so radically bad and fucked up that it cannot stand and it takes radical action but it's like okay what are what radical action like what what are you proposing he's kind of a two-stater that's kind of yeah i mean i yeah. guess i guess i'm more thinking in terms of ta- like i was more thinking just in terms of tactics in general mm-hmm. like on the left because he's like i think his tactic is like just being noticed everyone should do what he's doing <laughs> well everyone should just pay attention to what he says and everyone should just out. or yeah or like yeah. everyone should just like show up to the front lines of the protest and be like, excuse me, sir. <laughs> um, yeah. On page 28 <laughs> of your news article. I've read your article four times. Um, but I think honestly, the take of his, I thought was the most interesting was the Holocaust. He had another yeah. book called the Holocaust industry. I mean, basically he, he's just arguing the book that the, He's basically arguing that a handful of people have basically co-opted the suffering of all of these Jewish people to basically further their own political aims and have basically mm-hmm. turned it and into get rich. yeah and into its industry that further 
What's Josh? Do you know a lot, a lot about the Swiss bank stuff? I did. I looked into that because I hadn't heard of it. Yeah, because that's a big part of the Holocaust. Um, thank God, book, there's right? a journalist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there, his two kind of big beefs with the Holocaust industry, as he calls it, is one is like that he thinks that is people in Israel and American Jews use the memory of the Holocaust to justify Israel doing shady and awful things. They kind of like that sort of like forever trauma of like you know we have to go scorched earth or else like there will be another holocaust kind of thing um the kind of the more which i i think is a a fairly straightforward argument and seems pretty easy to see it happening i mean that's literally like i've had people in my life and my own family make the virtually the same argument and it's an easy argument to make because it can actually be wrapped up in a span of time that is less than even 50 years yeah which is like that's that's really good when it comes to like being able to tie in an idea. It's harder to imagine centuries and centuries and centuries of anything. It's very easy to be like this yeah. happened. This that's happened why to we my have uncle. This. this happened to my grandma. Yeah. Like yeah. Um, his other argument is that in the '90s there was a series of big lawsuits against German and Swiss banks and like industrial companies for having basically profited from the Holocaust in various ways. So either like keeping bank accounts that belonged to people who were killed or disappeared or, you know, and the rightful heirs like couldn't get to the money, get it or like people working in slave labor conditions for different companies. Or so say like, if you were at a work, if you were working in a slave labor situation in Germany, that German company was more than likely banking the money it was making in Switzerland. So like, basically there is a, a huge amount of people with one kind of claim or another to like having a monetary, the monetary impact of the Holocaust. Yeah. There were hearings, there were commissions, there were audits and it's the, it's the, it's a big crux of the like German reparations to the Jews. Yeah. And they, and to their credit, if you're not Norman Finkelstein, they, they put a number on it and they gave out like, over a billion dollars at least the swiss one was like 1.2 billion or something and so on one hand it's like wow that's pretty amazing they did the accounting they're like trying to make it right but then on the other hand like you know each person's only getting a couple thousand bucks and like so imagine norm's complaint was that didn't didn't he think the whole thing was kind of bullshit well yeah so he thought so on one hand like his parents in auschwitz in warsaw they got a couple thousand bucks from all this which felt like this kind of like if you're going to put a number on it and then only make it be a thousand dollars, that yeah. seems pretty ludicrous. And then on the other hand, that there were like, you know, there were lawyers, there were auditors, there were museum curators, there were Jewish foundation people who used this process to like vastly enrich themselves. Right. Um, just, and he, I think he also mentions like people like museum curators basically using it to like bolster their collections and like lawyers basically being I mean, again, these institutions are essentially acting in the in the way that they that they always have, yeah. essentially, which doesn't make it better. But it's uh-huh. like it's or he fucking hates uh, Eli Wiesel, the author and Holocaust survivor, because yeah. he like drives around in a limo and has a twenty five thousand dollars speaking fee and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. What's your speaking fee, Norm? He literally, I mean, he literally makes his living off of a speaking fee. So didn't he? He, I think he says it in the documentary. I can't remember what it was. Well, it's 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 gotten lower since uh, every time he opens his mouth, it gets lower. <laughs> I think. 
<laughs> but so yeah, so like he, uh, <laughs> the price is going down. Um, sell yeah, now. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. Sell, not, sell, sell. sell. Yeah. If you if you still have Norman Finkelstein, sell. There's um, he's not only a lot on the you. demand side for yeah words um, that Norman Finkelstein is gonna say. So anyway, you know, a pretty provocative argument, and like naturally in Norman world, he makes it in very insulting ways. Yeah. Um, he's like he's really good at insulting people. Um, oh, he's like freaking triumph. Yeah, no, he's really, really good. <laughs> the incel comic. Um, I'm dog. trying to find what he called them. Triumph, the incel comic. Cats? You know, insult, not oh. incel. Triumph, the insult comic dog. It was like this Conan thing from the 90s. Oh, it was he this calls little dog that was like, "You are ugly." So anyway. he called like the people who basically were suing the German government for reparations. He called them a repellent gang of plutocrats, hoodlums, and hucksters. Like he just is like, that's like his default mo. So, you know, kind of like a provocative argument, kind of interesting, but also like, you know. And but the thing is, so people like like neo-Nazis love love the Holocaust industry. Yeah. So like they love his book. Yeah. Yeah. But and so then that led to people calling him a Holocaust denier. OK, so I guess that I did a little bit of research on that, too, which is very interesting. So there's there's two things. And actually, it the second thing is going to be my personal main criticism of him and everything he's done not that it fucking matters i'm a fucking norm you have 24 hours to respond (laughs) 27 year old fucking bassist from san francisco none of what i think matters but like so a a big part of the like holocaust denying controversy is comes from the fact that norm also as much as i think he would probably vehemently deny this he does not like to be wrong um Oh, yeah. He claims he's on the side of the truth, but, like, he doesn't like being wrong. He also claims yeah. that, yeah, he's, like, not emotional and not ideological. He's, like, all I see are facts. Like, it's, like, science. Yeah, he's and big. Like- I guess that kind of – I mean, we'll get into this later, but that's kind of how – that was his pipeline into being, like, a weird cancel culture guy. But – so, yeah. basically, he – there was this guy who is, like – uh, up in the air on whether he's actually a Nazi, which when you're in the world of academia usually means you're a Nazi. Uh, Who's undecided? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, or like if you're if you're debatably a Nazi. Yeah, he's like not been out and been like, look, man, Hitler, National Socialism. Maybe it's a thing that uh, I could get tattooed onto my dick. But he's been <laughs> he's said a lot that would make you think that perhaps 88s appeared somewhere on his body. Um, I don't know if you guys know that. that like, oh, code. like 1488 or whatever. Eight, well, 88 in particular is the Hitler, HH. Sure. That was for the listeners. Oh, oh <laughs> wait. Wait, wait. HH is Hail Hitler? I thought it was Hubie Halloween. <laughs> Fuck. Okay. <laughs> Damn. That, that changes not, things. Uh, Sorry. So basically, he there was this, this possibly Nazi historian who basically was making a lot. He was the guy who makes the claim. You'll see it every now and then that Hitler was kind of a... Uh, like a hands-off dictator which has kind of been proven like against meaning uh, what that he just he just said stuff and people fucking went for it but that's not a reason to be angry at hitler is sort of (laughs) well sure it is (laughs) but basically i'm sorry he's a very captivating speaker the guy who made this claim i can't remember his name it's not good research i'm sorry but whatever this is a free show um (laughs) he basically he's a kind of uh he's a He's a military historian. So you also can kind of look at that and be like, oh, he's maybe not the best person to be un- like reading these kinds of primary source documents and whatever and parsing out things because he really likes talking about how many tanks there were and what rifles they were using and all that shit, right? So 
basically Norm had kind of used some of his work as part of a case for something else that he made. And then someone was like, Hey man, like that guy's kind of a Nazi and whatever. And he's like, he's kind of a Nazi. Well, he's a good military historian and yeah, kind of a, like, tripled I like him. down. Yeah. yeah the- he does that. He, yeah. I, there's a really funny quote from him from one of the podcasts I was listening to him on where the host is basically saying like, yeah, like some people, like if you criticize Israel, like we'll call you an anti-Semite or whatever. And and he's like, for the record, like I think anti-Semites have every right to criticize Israel, <laughs> which is a <laughs> hilarious take. Uh-huh. He's like, yeah, if you're the most anti-Semitic person in the world and you're saying uh, shit about Israel's crimes that are correct, then I care about that more than if you ha- are coming from a great place and you're wrong. He's like, that's just more of him like being he like, facts, rather, facts, facts. I love the facts. He would side with like a, yeah, like a Nazi who supports Palestinian rights than Alan Dershowitz. Right. And I, I think, and that gets into like my biggest issue with him is this guy, to say that he shoots from the hip is a fucking understatement. He shoots from the hip blindfolded with a weapon he's never handled before. <laughs> yeah, like, like, in his sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After fucking two bottles of whiskey. Yeah. Like the, the, the man does kind of, when he is being poignant, he knows how to use words very effectively, and he knows how to, when he's writing, basically, absolutely eviscerate false arguments. When he is just speaking, he, yikes, yeah. he's flammable, he's fucking, and I think one of the things that bugs the fuck out of me is about his overall career is he speaks so off the cuff and so loosely, and in a lot of cases, quite honestly, so vaguely, that you end up being able he speaks in such a way that whatever you want to use his words to bolster you can use some people will use that for good you know what i mean and they'll use it to make hey look these are very kind of like legitimate arguments you can make about how uh the jewish people honestly and truly have interacted in the land that we we call israel slash palestine and like like levy pretty real and legitimate criticisms guess against israel you can also take it on a totally fucking right wing, uh, kind of like national socialist Nazi fucking bent, and be like, "See, even the Jews think that." And the problem is, he speaks so vaguely that neither the people are correct or wrong. Yeah, he is saying these things. It might not be what he believes, but he's kind of just got so obsessed with dropping the mic that he has no. Yeah, he really gets. I like the same interview I was listening to him on, like. He was talking about – he's talking about like the Holocaust industry as a concept and yeah. like the interview interviewer kept on saying like, but what about people who like genuinely want to like have remembrance for this? And he just kept being like, nobody cares about the Nazi Holocaust. <laughs> nobody cares. Everyone's <laughs> full of shit except for me. He's just like, oh man, come yeah. on. Nobody when cares. It's like, like, I get that like in your neighborhood growing up, people weren't just like talking about it all the time. Right. It's just like so many chips on his shoulder. Yeah. Right. He's has- like a freaking bag of Doritos. <laughs> like tripped in some mulch man that guy's good but yeah so like and i think he honestly i think his as much as in the narrative of his life and in his own world and how other people perceive him like the battle with alan dershowitz sort of like ruined his life i think it also showed him how much kind of moral authority and just frankly attention you can get by like being a media fist fighter kind of he like uh-huh. has it. He has like the exact yeah. same kind of set of instincts that like I think some of these sort of like substack intellectuals, if you want to call them that, like sure. a Glenn Greenwald, a Glenn Greenwald, uh, uh, you know, a Jordan Peterson, uh, a Matt Iglesias. I mean, they're obviously like 
very different. Oh, they're all very different. Very yeah. different ideologically and different no, levels of quality, but they saying. all just fucking yeah. love beef. Like they think they don't, but they love the arguments, the counter arguments, the like here's my post responding to your post. They oh, yeah. they cannot help themselves from they cannot help themselves from using academia and facts to bolster their personal opinions of a of a singular individual yeah and they all are always claiming that they're just they just want the logic they just want the truth when it's like you want the beef when it's like you want the beef my friend (laughs) well yeah it's like beyond their version of beyond brisket um their version of the truth is also bound up in their personal position yeah like inescapably i think that leads us a shame because he is He's got some shit to say. He's got some good. He's got some very important things to say. I think one of the things that, like, if he did nothing else in his career, it was important to fucking take that book that was from time immemorial and fucking setting it on the fucking on the the, the pavement and stomping the shit out of it. Like that book shouldn't have ever been written. It shouldn't have ever been around. It's at best, it's a good example for journalism students for like, hey, this is how if you're not careful about what you're doing and how you're writing stuff or whatever, people can just make whatever the fuck they want out of what you say. Like that, it's really valuable in. And I think he did a fucking amazing job in actually being like, look, you don't just get to fucking randomly wander into a war zone for I don't know how long she was reporting there. I don't want to dismiss any of the trauma she might have fucking experienced during there or whatever. But you don't just get to fucking like read a couple documents and be whatever and then just be like, what if this ethnicity didn't exist? Like what I was saying is yeah, this whole like everything we were talking about just now kind of translates nicely into how in the last few years he's really latched onto the idea of cancel culture. And, and bird watching. And bird, <laughs> and bird watching, yeah. Yes. I guess what, what I'm getting at is to say that normanfinkelstein.com is a trip. Um it's it's <laughs> kind of like it's kind of like the uh bizarro the bizarro jubilong a little bit. <laughs> okay, yeah, actually, I could kind of see that. Kind yeah. of like Judaism <laughs> according to one deranged yeah. individual. He's um, yeah, he is the um he is the antithetical uh, end of Juvalong that must exist for the universe to, to maintain stability. <laughs> yeah, right. For a dead. What I kind of want is to have him on the podcast and show him Juvalong and watch his whole braid explode. <laughs> imagine this man. I'm sorry, I, not to lead us down a Juvalong rabbit hole, but it just imagine this man discovering that website. He would melt. Yeah. Um, or he just maybe just bust out one of his classic insults. That's true. I see you. Are you pulling up a... I'm just pulling like, up normanfinkelstein.com because it's just... A, it's just, Remember the episode of The Office where somebody sets Creed up with <laughs> like Creed's thoughts, but it's just a Word document? Uh-huh. Somebody should have done that for, for our buddy Norm because... Um, yeah, but also he's like written a book about cancel culture or whatever, which is interesting because he like actually was he was canceled. I mean, first of all, it's insane. This is something I've been wanting to say. It's insane that like politicians and intellectuals are using the phrase canceled when it was like started out as like a joke that a gay teenager made. Like I can't. Is stress- that literally where it came from? I'm pretty sure it was some kid on Tumblr being like, mm, "Looks like you're canceled," and then uh-huh. now people are talking about it as uh-huh. if it's a real phenomenon. Right, because it had to do with someone who had a baffling. TV show, uh-huh. and it was like that was the fucking that was the real. Oh, the knife so in the, side. the very first post on his website 
um, is from October 27th, 2021. So yeah, pretty recently. Say, less than a month latest. ago. Um, and the caption is, substitute racist for sugar and you'll get the long and short of cancel culture. So you're like, you're like, what? What does that mean? Um, what look, does that mean? Well, um, I, I was going to open the video. I'm not going to because it's it's not loading. But basically, it just if you click on it, it just takes you to a YouTube video of that old song that's like, oh, sugar in the morning, sugar in the evening, sugar at supper time. Racism so he's basically saying that with cancel culture, you're always a racist. So it just like doesn't make that so he much like, sense. Yeah, he like doesn't think cancel culture is valid if it's people critiquing other people for talking about racism and yet like yeah it's kind of just like a baffling position for him to evolve no i think honestly and truly this is it just seems like he's someone it's not something he's clued into yeah and he's probably just you know he was like he heard this term saw that it was affecting someone that he likes or whatever and was like him it's affecting him well, no, I, I or Chappelle. What you think he loves Chappelle? Because in the next post, yeah, it's like I, the next post is some thoughts on being canceled, and it's like the first paragraph is about how he tried to join. He tried to get on some panel at the Cambridge University Palestine Society, and they kicked him off because of his views on BDS. Um, and then the next paragraph, he talks about how woke lunatics want to cancel Dave Chappelle because they don't <laughs> oh like his jokes about the LGBTQYZ. He's just being a fucking like old man. Like, how do He's... you not see that you're being like just a fucking chud right now, my man? But then this I kind of wanted to read. Um, a few years ago, I told an utterly innocuous joke to one of Amy Goodman's interns at Democracy Now! that mentioned Michael Jackson. Um, a couple of days later, the goddess of wokeness rang me up. She said that everyone at the Sundance Film Festival was appalled by Michael Jackson after watching a documentary on his life. Parentheses. As it happens, I am insufficiently woke to get invited to Sundance. This all reads like a Trump press release. Yeah. The fact that I mentioned Jackson's name in the joke breached the woke rules of etiquette. The days of white male privilege are over, she kept intoning in her voice me, over the phone, oh. meaning she did not say that because no one's ever said that. Uh -huh. Right. Like I said before, I'll take things that never happened <laughs> for 500. Yeah. I was thereafter banned from the studio of democracy now. If Goodman had been Mao's wife during the Cultural Revolution, the Chinese <laughs> would not now be challenging the U.S.'s global dominance as half the population would have been killed off. Damn. For wow. sure, dude. I'm always <laughs> saying that. I can't believe we got all the way back to if X were people that uh, someone dude. would be China. China, China the ultimate, <laughs> really the ultimate analogy machine. So what's crazy? Okay, what so, is it with fucking cantankerous Jews in China? What I don't the know, fuck? man. But so okay, so like having said all this, now that you have presumably uh, bared with us for like an hour and a half and learned a lot about Norman Finkelstein, so what I find kind of frustrating about him is he says so much just useless shit like that. And then at the same time, like I was listening to some pretty recent interviews with him where I thought he made kind of his most salient point, at least in recent years, where he was kind of like, my parents grew up in the ghettos of Europe. Like it was awful what they went through. And like Gaza has essentially been a ghetto for five times as long as any of the World War II era ghettos in open air with full modern technology to see what's going on and it's not in the middle of a war and the world's just let him get away with it. And like, yeah, I think that's pretty, and he's like that. And he was like, as the son of Holocaust survivors, that to me is a greater crime that you're basically penning in like 2 million people with 
subhuman water, food, etc. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the I'm, open air and no one cares. Like again, it would be f- it's it wouldn't be frustrating if he were just a fucking Yahoo. You know what I mean? If he were always just fucking like if he never had any kind of credibility or if he had uh if he had only stumbled upon his like little outburst of fame or whatever, it wouldn't be frustrating because then he's just some fucking wacky lunatic and like wacky lunatics, they pop up. You know what I mean? And <laughs> sometimes they, come, they, they get a lot of support, but he's like very clearly like capable of having like, not just like complex thought or whatever. Like he's really good at intoning what the issue is. It's because he, he constantly says like, it's not about who's doing it. It's about the fact that it's being done. Yeah. And if you're not willing to see it because of who's doing it then that's fucked up yeah and it's like it's like just which norm like decides to show up that day really because like there's another he's this other more recent book about which norm do you think takes off his shirt and shows his nipples off in the documentary (laughs) um to be fair he's just swimming it's not (laughs) yeah i I did not register that moment like like on stage at a (laughs) an old-timey gentleman's club it's like yeah we've all heard the We've all heard the famous like clip where he's like, "I do not like the crocodile tears," and then the next clip is just him ripping his shirt off. <laughs> I do not like it, and I do not respect that he's like shimmying. It, <laughs> but do you like these? <laughs> How you like these? Um, yeah, I'm sorry. sorry you, were, no. you were you were making the point. Oh, I was just gonna say he had another pretty good recent point. I thought were like. There's this big UN review of the 2000, forget which, it was like the the Israel attack on Gaza in the 2000s where like they just fucking flattened it and like pretty much targeted civilians. 2006? Yeah, it must have been. 2020, 2006. <laughs> yes, the year of our Lord 200, 2006. Um, and the UN commissioned this like review of it. It was pretty groundbreaking. Yeah. They, it was by the South African lawyer. They thought it was going to be kind of like the Israelis thought it was going to be this sort of like slap on the wrist. But he's really like, no, there's pretty clear evidence. And he just used basically things Israeli soldiers said. Yeah. That like you guys targeted civilians. You did awful things. You didn't do what you said you were going to do. Um, Israel kind of freaked out, spun up all the pressure machine. And then a couple of years later, none of the facts had changed. But the lawyer guy was like, actually, I think I was wrong. So like. And then, of course, like, Norman, everything is cancel culture. Finkelstein was like, yeah, he, like, it's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, these ideas are too hot for consumption. And, like, and it's like, right. he's right. But then it's just like, why are you talking about Dave Chappelle in the same breath as the UN, you know, pressuring, like. Yeah. Well, it's funny because he's like, Norman, Norman Finkelstein and Dave Chappelle are comparable in that they've been done some great work and been correct about so much stuff and then also they're just like kind of turned into old out of touch weirdos yeah i think also both of them suffer from the uh it's i mean it's it's one of the most human afflictions but it is the idea that i've said something right that other people wanted to hear before therefore all the things i say are right and everybody wants to hear them (laughs) yeah once you get a taste of that, it rots yeah. your brain. And I think, yeah, no, I think a hundred percent. We're not talking about Dave Chappelle, but Norm Finkelstein for sure has suffered a certain degree of just like brain rot that comes from being in the media. Totally, in the twenty first century. I've seen people make the arguments in a kind of different context, but that there should be no like house reviewers or house critics at any magazine for the same reason. Where like, if you're 
if your livelihood depends on you having a certain kind of opinion over and over again, yeah. inherently it's just going to suck after a while because like the yeah. institution will like corrupt. Well, that's the kind incentives of incentives corrupt you kind of. That's kind. Let me see if I can pull up this quote from the documentary because it kind of addresses. Well, let me just read it. It says. It's from some guy named Omer Bartow, who's like a, a think hater. He says, what I find so striking about the Holocaust industry is that it is almost an exact copy of the arguments it seeks to expose. It's filled with precisely the kind of shrill hyperbole that Finkelstein rightly deplores in much of the current media hype over the Holocaust. Finkelstein can now be said to have founded a Holocaust industry of his own. Just like it's kind of some legitimacy to legitimacy no, to that's that. A, that's, like, that's a pretty fair criticism of actually. He literally sells a book called The Holocaust Industry. Yep. Um, that's so fucking meta. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like yeah, that's very fair. I think. Um, yeah, I don't know. This uh, he's a he's a complicated fella. You could yeah. say he's also. I don't think we need to dive too far in, but he is obsessed with bullying Barry Weiss. <laughs> Um, his website, if you, if you type Barry Weiss into his website, it's like five pages of him making deranged blog posts. I, um, yeah, it's, I mean, we just went over this, but I'll just say it for the sake of the audience. I don't think you really need to like go whole hog on berating Barry Weiss for all the embarrassing things she does. She does a pretty good job of just embarrassing herself constantly. Yeah, no, it's, it's weird. He's like obsessed. She's do you guys know who Dave Rubin is? Yeah, she's like a, a a more established academically version of him, of just someone who's like always been seeking attention and like wants to work in media. And when it didn't work out when they were talking about like more kind of like liberal leftist stuff, they found that there was a uh, an audience in, let's say, 2014 to now that really kind of ate up if you were like, a liberal criticizing the woke liberals. She's um, almost making seven figures blogging. I'm not that concerned. Yeah, he just. No, this is one of his blog posts. The title is Barry Weiss signed seven figure book deal that will showcase her mental endowment. Parent or colon all caps. How to boil lukewarm water and make a wild chicken soup. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Norm. <laughs> oh wow! Wow. Again, you could the the way that you make that point if you really wanted to make that point is like look at this mediocre people person who doesn't really have any values in particular and just wants to make money. Look at how they're constantly propped up by the system to ensure that that happens because that's more important for them to use their resources to promote than it is for them to promote any kind of like real journalism or like actually you know forward thinking cutting edge thought. That's a useless fucking that. What I just said is also a useless article to write, though. Or it's just like you just have to make them fucking pay her fucking however the much fucking money, not buy her book, and then realize like, oh, we fucking wasted this. And right, I'm just gonna tap in again with a with a Barry Weiss thing from NoranFinkelstein.com. All caps again. <laughs> um, here's what happened at Miami senior citizen's home when Barry Weiss's granny forgot to take her antidepressants. And it, and, it, and it links to a video that is unavailable. So we oh, all just get to boy. wonder. Wow. We all just get to yeah. spend the rest of our days wondering uh-huh. what did happen Jeez. when Barry Weiss's grandma. You know what I will say is so like um, I I'd mentioned this off the pod, but uh one thing that uh, Joan Didion once wrote about Al Sharpton that I always thought was pretty perceptive was like his superpower is knowing that people hate Al Sharpton and he deploys it strategically to get people to pay attention to things by like he's such a magnet for attention sure, yeah. and like kind of irresistible. 
that people are like, oh, I guess I better pay attention to this lawsuit or this police killing or whatever. And I feel like Norm Finkelstein, maybe not as intentionally, but he's like kind of so grating that he does at least make you pay attention. And I've learned a great deal about Israel and Palestine in the process of researching his work just now compared to what I would have just from like the ambient information Uh in the media most of the time. And I actually think if you're going to, to look at his career and not necessarily his work, his work is mostly valuable in the stuff that's about Israel and Palestine. But if you want to just kind of study who he is as a public figure is a very good way of entering the world of the Israel Palestine conflict through the lens of the United States in particular. Um, I don't think he's super helpful if you want to look at it necessarily in the terms of like historical fact or whatever, his career overall, because he's kind of just sort of levied that into whatever it is he's fucking doing now. No, he's helpful if you want to make sense of how it's all been sold to you as a Jew, though. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he's good at. He's like commenting on the discourse. He's not uncovering new facts. It's almost all very Talmudic. You know, because it's just yeah. like people Shit. replying to people uh-huh. replying to people replying. Wow. It's like he is kind of st- squarely <laughs> stuck in the tradition right there. Where, but I mean, I, yeah, like. And here we are, Talmudically, making a podcast about. Well, bad old normie boy. I don't yep. know. Do we cut or keep him? How do we fuck him? <laughs> <laughs> we keep him. That's hilarious. I would keep, keep him. Too. Yeah, keep him. He's. I would say he's. A, he's a solid keeper. I think. Like. Like I said, his his work fucking debunking from time immemorial. Like that book is so fucking hostily toxic that like it needs someone to come out and honestly make uh, a singular point of their academic career to be like this is why this is fucking because that's exactly the kind of shit that like. If you don't debunk it, there's lots of other works like it throughout history. That is the kind of shit that will run like wildfire and shit will get out of hand. Oh, yeah, no, he did. Yeah, he did did like a historical service. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say he's a strong keep it for me for like for removing that book from the historical record, for making some good points along the way. And for honestly, I like how I don't think he lives up to it, but I actually like how kind of like righteous he is. Like, I think. Not many people are truly willing to be miserable all the time and literally never shy away from an argument because of what <laughs> they believe. He really is yeah. miserable. Yeah. Like no, he's, I, he's like I, a rigorous guy, even though he like doesn't always live up to it. But I think like he did legitimately ruin his life for the sake of his principles. Yeah. Yeah. And most people wouldn't. And that's honestly where the rubber beats the road. Like almost yeah. everybody has principles. Almost no one is willing to change the facts of their life for the worst to live them out. Yeah. And like, I mean, like I said, also his good buddy, Noam Chomsky was like, this will ruin your life. And he fucking did it. anyway. Yeah, he dove in anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Noam Chomsky was also right. It did mm-hmm. ruin his life. Also, I just think he any- ruined his, I mean, he's, his life was ruined by the fact that he cannot stop being angry about the injustices of the world. And he can't turn that off. So he's just like going to go crazy. Yeah. Just like yeah. the thing we're all kind of up against of, but like he, I don't know. I think it really. Yeah. It's like, you know, for all the arguments, his noggin. Yeah. For all the arguments <laughs> I've been making about how like the tone he uses can sometimes be dangerous or whatever. Like if you're that fucking inundated and I feel this way sometimes too, with like 
the injustice, the chaos, the fucking like terrible reality of the world state. It is hard to have like a reasoned conversation with someone yeah. who's trying to actively tell you that like that's not how it is. Totally. It's no. like the same way where you're like trying to talk with these people who are like, yeah, tr- climate change is real, but like how are we really going to like f- f- make solutions that well, are yeah, going to fucking fit the economy? It's a question of tactics. And you're like, what the fuck are you talking oh, about? Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. impossible to have the conversation almost to not sound like a lunatic because it's like everything you're talking about literally won't fucking matter and doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Yeah. He, I, you brought up this quote from him earlier, but actually I thought it was pretty poignant where he's sort of like the thing that makes me a radical is just seeing how radically like bad the world is yeah and like you have to be a little crazy because the world is crazy bad yeah and i'm like yeah i think that's a valuable thing to think about yeah and i think we just wish that he would sometimes rant at like a a, a little tape recorder in his room he also just he literally swims. fucking like just like needs friends probably yeah he that's doesn't... where we come in <laughs> that is where the smite me boys come in that's true I don't know that we I are single-handedly gonna rescue him <laughs> imagine if he just became the fourth mike on the pod like oh my God. wouldn't that <laughs> honestly i wouldn't mind having them on the show but i don't want i don't want to fucking talk to him on a bi-weekly basis imagine <laughs> you trying excuse to excuse me trying to get him to send in his audio on time <laughs> oh no i bet he would be pretty good about that actually no he'd probably be just like yeah here it is and it's just like a fucking strangling gap from his neighbors <laughs> i will say in multiple interviews of his i listened to he gets a phone call during the interview <laughs> yes. answers it and says i'm doing an interview right now i'll call you back okay God, what without a... missing a beat not like oh sorry i'm gonna take this or, okay sorry about that he's just oh right God. back to what he's doing i love it too because the tone is always like you're being very rude to the person on the phone it's like well are they uh, anyway. and it's just hilarious that it's it's like it's a common thing somehow like everyone's once... always calling calling norm yeah who's calling I, norm i think at the end of the day, the thing that would trigger the, me the most about talking to him would just be his like rank unprofessionalism for a recording environment. Mm. Yeah, he probably he's probably just like, why can't I put the tea on the table? <laughs> I want to. The scream. table is for the tea, and I'm not wearing headphones. Ayani, you said this the other day, but this man, he really is like what people tried to make Bernie out to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. That's. He's- that's good. The caricature that they tried to make Bernie Sanders into is a man named Norman Finkelstein. <laughs> <laughs> should we uh, should we go out on that? Yeah. Sure, why not? Someone uh-huh. have a blessing. I don't want to fucking... This might be the only time I would say maybe pray for someone. Pray for Norman <laughs> Yeah, honestly. <laughs> hashtag pray for Norman. I hope, he fi- I hope he finds peace. I hope he finds peace. I hope like strangle. Oh, imagine this man as a yeah. ghost. Yeah. Oh, he's oh, a ghost. Now. He's a ghost. I think he's a ghost. He's just got a That's lot of so... unfinished business. <laughs> yeah. He should also be wow. very proud of the fact that every obituary I read about Joan Peters was about how her book was a fucking god. <laughs> Damn. Imagine, uh, yeah. Which, you know what? He fucking did. Her fucking son is a sports journalist, I believe. I think Ooh. he got fucking... <laughs> got the fucking memo that we're not supposed to be you know delving into some serious hard-hitting shit like four more generations before a peters ever tries to write a book again yeah man fucking uh it's like yeah i think yeah he he did a real public service with that one he really did um i would it's it's hard to imagine because or to see it because we don't have a lot of documents that come out like that in more recent times or whatever but like 
that's some like that book was like some weird birth of the nation shit like yeah and he fucking came out with his fucking shrill annoying voice <laughs> and was like this is not true it's yes. a fraud yes. and, and and as a result we don't have to deal with it because honestly and truly otherwise i think in our like youngin israel education when we were in high school oh dude that's so true yeah we would have been told to read this book from time immemorial about Uh how the fucking palestinian people don't exist and how they're all immigrants from fucking saudi arabia syria and egypt and they came after the white jews made the land fertile yep yeah we would have had like a f that noise youth group training session yeah how to counter common factual misunderstandings. We would have seen that at camp. The great and unimpeachable state of Israel. We would have seen that at camp. Yeah, we definitely would have seen it at camp. Yeah. So. All right. Well, thanks, Norm. Thanks, Norm. For thanks, Norm. We love you. That's smitemepodcast at gmail.com if you're listening. Oh, um, and uh, as always. I feel like I know it'll get to him. I'd, I think I think if we want to get to him, we'll have to reach out, but I he don't think that would be He might also be difficult. like a Google Alerts sniper in addition to a footnote foot sniper. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I don't think he cares that much about what people think. Like, Yeah, that's probably true. Anyway, all Sorry. right. Yeah. We didn't talk about, I mean, no, we talk, I, never mind. That's Where everybody thought. knows your name. Get it? Because like Norm. Okay, because Cheers, the guy's name is Norm. Oh. I've never watched oh, it fuck either. Cheers. Wait, you've never watched it either? I've never watched it either. You were that's trying to school us with a Cheers joke? And you never I don't know, I was just it. trying to... You said nothing to... like we all would have seen it like you've seen it. Like, oh, these fucking swine who don't know anything about fucking culture, but no. Wow. Just you want to talk poser. about claiming false authority? Jesus Christ. Jesus. Give me a okay. break. Yeah. Anyways. Allow me to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. And, oh, and, oh, and, and just to give you a preview of our next 12 episodes, it's going to be a true crime podcast where we try to figure out what was the joke that <laughs> Norm Finkelstein told on Democracy Now! to an intern that what was mentioned the Michael, what was the Michael, Michael Jackson, Jackson joke? Well, it wasn't necessarily a Michael Jackson joke. He, he just mentioned, mentioned Michael Jackson. Wait, I, I think I know what the Which joke means was. Which means it was a Michael Jackson yeah, joke. So, but we're going we're gonna to get to the bottom of it. We'll use our soft voice. This is a Michael Jackson joke I remember from when he died okay you ready um did you hear that uh michael jackson actually died from a um food allergy no No, that's crazy what was the food um well he choked on eight-year-old nuts (laughs) (laughs) that's like hardly a joke (laughs) norman ficklestein saying that in the (laughs) democracy now green room you get to deflect from that joke of just like and now imagine Norman saying <laughs> no I didn't say that that's probably what Norman said well I'm just also imagining him saying that at 11 which is his normal speaking voice he choked on 8 year old nuts <laughs> in the middle of his like in like a TV studio and they're like production keep it down do you know what's going on here and if if by some miracle of editing this what I'm saying right now makes it into the final cut um, Dersh you're on notice (laughs) yeah you're on the watch list alright thank you everyone have a good evening